welcome to today's presentations. I'm Maya and Ruben Fox. Uh, we are co-directors at of Post Socialist Arts Centre here at UCL. And, and we'd like to warmly welcome you to this uh, artist presentation and uh, panel discussion, Turbulent Geohistories of Sugar. And uh, this is part, it's also part of the turbulence, also comes from the turbulence turbulence stream of uh, the, the uh, Institute of Arts of Advanced Studies this year has a stream on turbulence, which this is part of. So this evening we will hear from Ilona Nemet about her extensive uh, research and exhibition project, uh, Eastern Sugar, which uh, uh, it's, I think we will be talking about its second edition, which took place in Bratislava Kunsthalle last year. And uh, Ilona's presentation will be followed by interventions from uh, cooking sections. So uh, welcome Daniel and uh, Alon, and also Leon. Leon uh, Wainwright uh, will also be responding to uh, Ilona's uh, presentation. And there should also be time for some questions and discussions afterwards. But before we ask Ilona to, to give her a presentation of the project, we'd also just like to share some of our thoughts about the Eastern sugar uh, project. Okay, so back then, 30 years ago, um, in the warm afterglow of the revolutions of 1989, the divisive histories of the 20th century seemed to have come to a definitive end. The prospects of pluralistic democracy and the rebirth of civil society gave a tailwind to the forces of cultural and economic globalization that would soon transform the world even more fundamentally than the long decades of the Cold War. So the upward trajectory reached new heights with the apparently amicable uh, expansion of the European Union to the east from 2004, setting a course of economic integration, the convergence of living standards and a consolidation of democratic norms. Today, however, this optimistic vision has been replaced by a more dystopian outlook, marked by increasing rates of emigration from Central Europe, the revival of historic hostilities between nations, and an alarming wave of populism, illiberalism, and xenophobia. With the project Eastern Sugar, Ilona investigates the pathologies of transition, uncovering their roots in the flawed mechanisms of privatization, entangled with asset stripping and systemic nepotism during the headlong rush from the dissipation of late socialism to the unruliness of feral capitalism. So, Lona's project is have an, it's, it's not aligned with this populist program of, of, uh, of sort of pure anti-globalization which has swept the political systems, systems of Europe and the world in recent times. It much rather takes a critical stance towards the fact that the economic transition uh, was carried out in the interests of certain financial and political elites, and not so much for the benefit of ordinary citizens. And the singular artistic approaches, as evident in this work, uh, uh, this is where are we? We sorry, sorry we are. <laughs> okay. So we'll start. I think you have to start here. Okay. So along with the demands to embrace free trade and open markets, came practices. So talk about the early 90s. Along with the demands to embrace, to embrace free trade and open markets in the early 90s came practices of protectionism, tariffs, and trade blocks that distorted the supposedly level playing field promised by neoliberal globalization. And uh, as we're going to hear, the recent history of the Slovak sugar industry 
was submerged and really mixed up in all these contradictory processes. And so it was not just the technological and financial disadvantages, but exclusion from what was then the common market, pre-European Union common market, that bankrupted the Slovak sugar production in the 1990s, with communist-era refineries snapped up by savvy Western investors for, for a song. So after 2004, with the entry of Slovakia into EU, the situation was reversed and the foreign-owned sugar beet industry in Slovakia was eligible for Euro European subsidies and protected by tariffs from the competition of sugarcane from the global south. In another twist, tens of millions of euros of compensation were paid to multinational consortiums as a reward for discontinuing sugar manufacture at the Slovak refineries, leading to the physical dismantling of only recently modernized sugar factories. This followed reforms to the sugar industry uh, designed to reduce overproduction in response to the de decision by the World Trade Organization that the systems of EU quotas and import barriers unfairly restricted global free trade. So it's this bittersweet emotional, social, and material residues left by cold financial calculations done somewhere else on some spreadsheets far and far away to which Alona gives tangible form in this body of work. And the choice of sugar as the prism through which to examine the multiple upheavals of the last three decades since the fall of communism brings with it, however, also much deeper historical associations. And it was indeed through a sugar trade based on the enslavement of more than 12 million Africans from the 15th to 19th century that much of the Western capital was accumulated to drive the Industrial Revolution and the forging of nation states. As Catherine Yusuf, in her take on the black Anthropocene, makes clear it was the emergence of sugar slave complex, massive replantation of ecologies and forced relocation of peoples that prefigured and made possible the new modes of production of industrial capitalism. And we don't need to look much further for evidence of the entanglement of colonial legacies with modern culture than in fact to the, to the Tate Gallery itself, which was of course established with the financial donation and the art collection of a sugar baron. Interestingly, it was also the same Tate and Lyle that was co-owner of the Eastern Sugar Company, which is the subject of, of Elona's project in Slovakia, posing interesting questions about the neo-colonialist dimension of the takeover of ex-socialist industries in Eastern Europe. So Elona's project is not aligned with, uh, with the populist program of anti-globalization that has swept the political systems of Europe and the world in recent times. It, is rather, it rather takes a critical stance towards the fact that in economic transition, the way it was managed and it was carried out in the interest of industrial and political elites rather than uh, in, for benefit of ordinary citizens. You can see that sing singular artistic approaches such as uh, is evident in, in this uh, work can act as a vehicle to pierce the economic abstractions of financial engineering and also to illuminate the effects of these kinds of economic transformation, transformations on individual experiences and also the life of communities. At the same time, in, as you'll see in, in Alona's project, by conducting interviews with managers and execu executives, she also uh, draws attention to the role of actual people rather than just generic institutions or abstractions in making crucial decisions with uh, lasting consequences for uh, communities. And in difference to the tendencies to dwell on socialist nostalgia, which many contemporary art projects do, uh, which is colored by longing for security and bygone certainties of the old regime, Ilona's Eastern Sugar focuses on the psychological distress caused by economic uh, upheavals of the transition. 
and the communities affected by the closure of sugar refineries suffered a sense of loss caused by the erasure and the real state of industrial landscape to which they were familiar, and the anxiety caused by disappearance of tactile mode of labor-intensive agriculture that entailed physical contact with soil and with plants, which was further accompanying this kind of sense of loss was by, by missing the sounds and the smell of the factory, and then the rhythms of seasonal labor, and uh, which was also once marked by the moments of rest and celebration. So uh, if Ilana's works maybe could say, it suggests somehow an antidote to the social effects of deindustrialization de and uh, deprivation from the rewards of manual labor. This can be seen in this exhibition as the, the, the opportunity that she gives to, to visitors to take part in the making of traditional sugar loaves. By transforming the central gallery space into a dedicated manufacturing and packaging station, uh, the artist provided visitors with this rare chance to experience forming these conical towers of sweetness and sharing the satisfaction of, of, of starting and uh, finishing a simple manual task. And this workshop also had the dark social impact in giving uh, temporary respite and paid work to individuals suffering from chronic unemployment as a consequence of the same economic processes. And it also offered the means to work through feelings of anomie in a complex technological world ruled by automation and the rise of artificial intelligence. The exhibition indeed stood as a warning about the future encroachments and working lives heralded by the technological advances that are on course to further sideline the human element in the production processes. So while in the early 1990s there was a sense of jubilation that accompanied the opening of the first McDonald's or the first IKEA in different countries across Eastern Europe as, the, as symbols of this capitalist new future, today the legacy of the transition is more accurately captured by abandoned factories and destitute provincial towns. Mm -hmm. So shining light on social consequences of political and financial decisions inevitably leads to the question of responsibility. And while it establishes a compelling diagnosis of the roots of the present crisis in Eastern Europe, the project is also uh, uh, offers uh, uh, some kind of promise or prospect of prevention of such procedures in the future. And uh, so this, I think, will become much more clearer after we hear Ilona's presentation and see actual images of the exhibition. So, so I'd like to uh, welcome Ilona. So Ilona Nemet is, a, is a, an artist, curator, and professor in the Intermediate Department at the Academy of Fine Arts and Design in Bratislava. Her work has dealt with questions of gender and body politics, tackled social and political issues through urban interventions and public insta installations, and engaged with some important overarching contemporary themes, such as the relationship between private histories and political ideology. Her international exhibitions include Invitation for a Visit in the Pavilion of the Czech and Slovak Republic at the Venice Biennial in 2001. She had many uh, outings to the Prague Biennial, uh, Gender Check, Femininity and Masculinity in the Art of Eastern Europe at Mumok Vienna in 2009, uh, Good Girls, Memory, Desire, Power at the Museum of Contemporary Art Bucharest in 2013, and uh, Paradox 90 at Kuntala Bratislava in 2014. She was also a participant and co-organizer of the Private Nationalism Exhibition Series across Prague, Kosice, Page, Krakow, Bratislava, and Budapest from 2014 to 16, and the project that we're going to hear about today, 
uh, was uh, a variation of it was first shown at Carlin Studios Futura Gallery in Prague in 2017 and uh, in 2018 Eastern, at Eastern Sugar at Kunsthalle Bratislava. She's also the recipient of numerous prizes and scholarships. So, Ilana, welcome. welcome, over to you. So, uh, thank you very much for the introduction and also for the invitation and I am very happy that uh, I can be today together with Leon and also in cooking section. I am very happy that we can have a talk together. So almost everything was told. So I will try to tell some, some subjective uh, thoughts about the whole project, uh, what I did last two years. So maybe uh, I will start with uh, uh, my motivation uh, why I started this project. So Eastern Sugar is my recent research and artistic project which was shown last year in Bratislava, Konstantin in Slovakia. There were two most important motivations to start this project. One of the main components is our changing Middle European identity, full with idealism and hope after 1989, especially in the 90s, which turned back to the opposite direction because of the economic problems, wide privatization, corruption, political climate changes, lost illusion of the possibility of the integration into the Western part of the uh, world, the Western part of the world. This animation that I am showing now, it is a, uh, my expression about how we feel in Middle Europe as a Middle European. Sometimes uh, the beginning of the 90s, we had a feeling that we are bigger than we are really. So on the map there, you can see the uh, four countries, the V4 countries, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, and Slovakia, and our feeling about uh, Middle Europe that um, 91, 96, uh, six, we had this feeling that we are much bigger as we in the reality were. And after that, we tried to be invisible in the recent times. Try to make not, uh, try to, uh, try to not uh, have, or uh, yes, try to not have a responsibility for the happenings in Europe. So that's why I made this uh, small animation in the anniversary of the Wave 4 um, Association when they was, uh, they was uh, 25 years old. Uh, as I, uh, as it was, uh, it was told, uh, I was working with the, the topic of the nationalism um, almost for uh, for nine years, and was uh, part of the private nationalism exhibition uh, serial and universal hospitality in Vienna and Prague. After the seven years spent on research and nationalism, I continued with research of the possible roots of the problems. I understood that I have to think about economical transformation and also the last almost 30 years long history of cooperation and non-cooperation between post-socialist Eastern Europe and Western Europe and with the rest of the world. The second component of my motivation to start Eastern Sugar Project was that I was born in town Dunajska Streda, southern part of Slovakia. I grew up in the shadow of the sugar factory, Juhocukor, South Sugar. My father was connected to the Slovakian agriculture as well. The factory was built in 1969. In 1993, Eastern Sugar, a British-French company, was formed by Tate Lyle and Saint Louis Sucre, and bought 38% from the state-owned company, gradually raised the ownership. 2000 Eastern Sugar became a 100% owner and renamed the former South Sugar Factory to Eastern Sugar. 
Our sugar factory uh, was demolished in 2007 based on the agreement between Slovakia and European Union and the World Trade Organization about the sugar quotas from the year 2004 as it was thought. The sugar factory in Dunajska Strada was the largest and most advanced sugar factory in Slovakia. It used to process the most sugar beet, 4,000 tons per year. The British French Eastern Sugar built a company covering four countries, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Poland, which, it, uh, which at its peak produced something like 350,000 tons of sugar per year in Central Europe, all closed in 2006. The European Union, pursuant to VTO negotiations, decided to reduce sugar production from 19 million to 14 million tons per year and to decrease the quotas allocated to individual member states. If any of the member states decided not to produce their sugar quota, they received compensation amounting to 730 euro per ton of sugar. Eastern Sugar took advantage of this possibility and returned the quota of 7,133 tons allocated to the Dunajska sugar factory to the European Union and collected 730 euro per ton. The requirement of the European Union was to make sure that once the quota was returned, the given sugar factory would never be put in operation again. That means that it was supposed to be disposed of in such a manner that it must be leveled to the ground, including the liquidation of the underground networks to deep, uh, deep of two and a ha uh, half meters. So you, you see already the gap after the, um, after the uh, sugar factory. And uh, this drone uh, was filmed, the film was uh, made by drone last year. So it did the situation recently. So I used the name of the, and also the letter of the company, like from the logo of the company, for my project Eastern Sugar. And the concept of the exhibition, which was in Kosthalle uh, Bratislava, the exhibition was, uh, it has different parts, like uh, it was a quite big, uh, reconstruction also of the site. So the one side was the archive, when we collected all the information about the former factories. The second part, in the middle part, there was a working manufacturer. There was a, a part of uh, artists who I invited, uh, partly as a curator of the show. And there was a fictive museum, the fictive uh, project of museum for sugar industry in Slovakia. This is the entrance of the a part of the for the Museum of Sugar. Uh, I will uh, show you some pictures later. So the this is the when when the people they came into the the visitors they came into the gallery they saw the first part uh, which uh, was this uh, archive this um, uh, participative archive uh, which they can move in a different ways. And on the first wall there was a uh, projection of one of the formal uh, sugar factory sites, Pohronsky Rusko, which was founded in 1893 uh, and finished after se uh, 100 years in 1993. Sugar, sugar beet is a plant entangled with Central European modern history and economy. 
Its high concentration of sugar was discovered during the mid 18th century by the Prussian chemist in the quest of finding an equivalent for sugar cane. Boosted by Napoleon's continental blockade when import of colonial sugar supplies was restricted, the plant provided not only a readily available source for sweetening, but also gave birth to the new industry branch. For agricultural regions, such as the Hungarian kingdom, later Austro-Hungarian monarchy, sugar production even became the engine of the belated industrialization from the second half of the 19th century onwards. Large sugar beet plantations and several sugar factories were established in the territory of present days, Western Slovakia, where the owners contributed to the region's development not only economically, but also through supporting education and culture. Overshadowed by the century of wars and socialist centralization, the factories still operat operative after 1989 were gradually integrated into global capitalism. In uh, 2006, many of them fell victim to the liberalization of the European sugar market, during which most of sugar factories have been dismantled and farmers changed their crops. The history of the sugar industry in Central Europe does relax the skillful or indifferent factory owners, altering state interests and economic policies as well as the workers exposed to these changes. In Eastern uh, sugar projects, sugar becomes a symbol for both growth and decay, providing a new angle from which Central European history can be discussed. Situation in 1990. Uh, we had in that time 10 existing sugar factories in Slovakia. In the early 90s, all were transformed from national companies to state enterprises and were offered for privatization. Uh, this building was uh, demolished partly uh, after the Second World War and was rebuilt in one year and started uh, the production again in 1946 and uh, as I told it, uh, finished the production in 1993. There was no uh, uh, capital to, to run the production. So in 99, we have 10 factories. We made research on these 10 locations together with my collaborators, uh, mapped the arch and archived the sites and their individual narratives. Uh, our archive consists from videos, photos, text, informations, uh, a lot of uh, archive materials from the, from the former workers and directors from the uh, sugar factories. So uh, the method was uh, very good for that reason because there is no museum, no archive where you can collect all the information about the sites. So I just decided to travel everywhere with the photographer and then we made this research in one year and we collected all the materials. So now we have two factories in Slovakia. One is an Austrian property, it is Agrana, and one is a German property. Uh, the name is Nordzucker of the company. And what is important also in, in the time of our research uh, happened that from the 1st of October 2017, sugar production and trade quotas were abolished. And uh, that was the moment when, when we also, uh, with the people who are working still in the companies, we had a feeling that this is the good news. But uh, it's very different because it can be the end of the sugar factories in those countries. 
because the sugar, uh, the price of the sugar is lower, and then the companies they will close the uh, the uh, sugar uh, sugar uh, factories in our countries and not in their countries. So it means the Austrian and German uh, sugar factory will be closed in Slovakia. This is the the future. So, uh, on the picture, you can see it, uh, the some kind of fundament of our research because. Uh, in the one working factory, I find the man Dusan Janicek, who, who was working in his whole life uh, in the sugar industry in the uh, different positions, and several times uh, he was a director of different uh, sugar factories, and he was also the uh, privatizer of one of the most uh, tradition and uh, all these sugar factories. Uh, and we made an interview with him, and he was talking about how the story uh, about uh, the sh uh, sugar industry beginning and how it changed after the after the 90 from his perspective, and uh, crucial was for me to to give another picture from the whole happenings from the one person who was uh, Christian Lauer, a lawyer who who worked for the first for the company Tietel Lyle in 1993 when uh, Slovakia was just. Uh, born like a second Slovakia, Slovak state, he came immediately, he was asked to come to Slovakia, and he was asked if whether he knows something about the region, and he, do, he told to, to his director that no, he has no um, information about that place, and it was thought that it is the best way to go and make a research. So he came and he started to make a research in, in uh, our region, and uh, slowly they bought four different sugar factories in, uh, in our region, in, in uh, V4 countries. That's why I showed you also the, the map with, the, with these countries. So this is the, the part of the exhibition, the archive part. Mm -hmm. There was a collection of the historical sites of the, of the different uh, sugar factories. And the people they can choose the photos and they can remove them in the order what they uh, how they like it. And uh, there is occasion to maybe to talk about some some uh, particular um, factories uh, historically very important like this one the Slatkovicovo Dioseg, which was opened in 1867 uh, uh, and then closed in 1999. The sugar factory in Slatkovicovo was founded by the Kufner and Gutmann families. Karoj Kufner uh, led the company from 1869 to 1927. Uh, in addition to modernizing and expanding the sugar factory, they improved Dioseg method for the beet growing, which was used in all, uh, in all Europe afterwards. A uh, special type of animal breeding, ecological, uh, and, and uh, they were ecological thinkers, as we uh, can call them today, because they used everything from the production. So they, uh, they made the different um, uh, companies, like side companies to the sugar factory, and they were uh, working with, uh, with uh, they produced uh, alcohol with the sugar and fruits, and they have gardens, they have uh, uh, this, they animal breeding, and they, um, also exported the, the meat to, to London and, and uh, Vienna, as it was written in the chronics. But uh, 
uh, they built not just, uh, they improved not just the factory, but they uh, built power plant, cannery, uh, cannery, railways, bridges, office buildings, residential houses, villas, and mansions with a collection of artworks and family mausoleum and casino. The architecture of their buildings was at the top European level at that time. Now it looks like this. So the, some of the remains of the building, they are historical monument in this condition. And everywhere you can see some kind of uh, industry with garbage. So it is uh, really some kind of uh, low level of, of uh, uh, low level works uh, are they in the location. And as an opposite, I can show some pictures from the Kufner family uh, interiors, which are still there. Like this, uh, this photo was also made just uh, last year. So the, uh, the Kufner family in eight, uh, 1838 emigrated to US in order to escape the fascist regime. Kufner Rao's second wife, Tamara de Lempicka, who was a, a Polish painter, Mm -hmm. She initiated the, uh, to sell the company in 1838. Yes. Uh, 1938. Yes, uh, so called. Uh, she had a good feeling to to choose the date, and uh, and she saved the family. She, she saved them that way the whole family. But the other Jewish family who bought the company, they all uh, disappeared and they were killed in the uh, concentration camps. So there are the, uh, some different details from the interiors. It is still used as a uh, school, and sometimes it was used as a um, as a collegium for children. Uh, I chose this photo because of the sugar loaves. <laughs> so the next uh, site is uh, Shurany. Um, this picture was made in uh, in the 50s when the between, we don't know exactly the date, but the uh, 50s, uh, when the, the company was the, the biggest and uh, produced the biggest amount of sugar. And it is a second uh, most odd, oddest uh, um, site in, in uh, former monarchy and also in, in uh, today Slovakia. The, uh, the chimneys, they were destroyed, demolished in 1990 and uh, the site uh, looks like uh, nowadays like this. And there is also a storage of different garbage. This one is uh, wooden chips. When I exhibited it in Prague, then uh, several people, they think that it, it, uh, they are some parts of the sugar beet. But we are not talking about sugar beet anymore. So it is uh, used in an absolutely different way. And uh, this is my favorite picture. I, uh, I just made a note. Uh, uh, the workers, who cares? And uh, this picture was made in uh, 1969 in one of the sugar factory in Nitra. It is also a south part of, of Slovakia. And uh, we don't know who is that person, but um, it was the only um, picture what I found uh, somebody at work in this uh, Nitra site. And uh, this is the, I just made the note that uniform consumerism is, uh, consumerism is replacing the production. It is Rimavska Sobota, the, the middle part of Slovakia. And we find the former sugar factory in this location in, uh, in that condition. This uh, family 
market is uh, is um, now built in every small and bigger uh, town in Slovakia and also in the region. And they are the this uh, in the middle. They are some kind of uh, tortai. Storage for for sugar <laughs> former sugar storages. Yeah, that, that was the photo uh, on the picture uh, when you started to talk. It was inside um, painted with this blue because of the desinfication. And this looks like now. So turning back to the uh, to the um, archive, it was presented in that way, and um, um, and the uh, continuation of the exhibition uh, was possible in two ways. The one way was to continue to the foreign artists who we uh, invited to the show, and the second uh, way was to enter to the, to the manufacturer. Uh, the manufacturer uh, was a crucial part of the exhibition um, because uh, from the beginning I was sure that I would like to, to produce uh, something uh, with sugar, but, the, but the, at the beginning I have a different idea about that. But when I studied the whole story, I was sure that uh, I have to employ somehow people who, who lost their jobs in the different ways. So I uh, contacted the unemployment office, the worker office uh, in our country, and we made an advertisement for the uh, working um, occasion for, for four months. Uh, I made interview with everybody who applied. So there were different people who were working in the past in the company. So, uh, some of them, they had uh, family members working there, or some of them just like uh, lived next to the companies. So we, uh, we decided, I made really interview with everybody. It was almost uh, 50 people who applied for the job. And it was, it was uh, from the beginning visible that uh, they will get a job just for four months, like a temporary job, and they have to travel to the place because it was in Bratislava and therefore from the different locations. And it was also clear that we will pay the, the every salary, like per hour for everybody. So the idea was to, to produce uh, sugar loaves. It, is not, uh, it was not really clear from the beginning but uh, what to produce, but when I visited the different sugar, sugar uh, companies, I get know that uh, the tradition was every year when the production started again and again, it was always in November, they produced sugar loaves as a, as a some kind of symbol of, of uh, renewing the production. In the past, it was uh, the form of the sugar, sugar cane uh, was used uh, before the Second World War as a normal commodity where how you could buy the sugar in the, in the shops. Um, and now it is uh, some kind of symbol of the renovation or something like this. And uh, all the factories who are still working, they are sending to each other the sugar loaves with a date and, uh, and um, with a with um, logo of the, of the company. So uh, in one of the companies in, in this uh, Austrian company, Agrana, uh, when I was there, then in the laboratory they showed me how to make the how to make the sugar loaves, and it was really a nice moment for me because it was in, on the one hand it was easy and uh, easy and complicated how how to make it, but on the other hand it was a really a very nice um, 
experience to make it. So it, some kind of regression to the, to the childhood when we were working on or making some forms with the sound. So it was uh, about that, about to provide, and uh, this was a moment when I decided that yes, we are going to produce the, the sugar loaves uh, and the exhibition. So we made a logo for the, for the used uh, also in, uh, in our company, Eastern Sugar, and we started to, to produce in a cooperation with the visitors. So the people, they could come and uh, uh, meet uh, our workers there, and they were able uh, to produce sugar loaves, and the agreement was uh, that uh, if they are making two, then they can uh, have one. But uh, it was interesting that if you were making the sugar loaf, then you cannot uh, take this one, what you made, because it has to be um, in the place for 24 hours to, to dry out. So it means that uh, there was a, some kind of exchange energy, energy of the people who made the, who made the sugar loaves. And uh, we, um, we made almost, uh, so we worked uh, with almost two tons of uh, sugar uh, during these uh, two months, uh, four months. And uh, after that, uh, some of the people who were working with us, uh, our employees, so-called employees, they were selling the, the products on the, on the market also in Bratislava. We still have some, some of those and we will continue with the, uh, with the, the providing the, the uh, sugar loaves somewhere in the markets. From the, from the central uh, place where the uh, manufacturer worked, there were two entrances, one of, to the museum and the second one to the, back to the um, archive. And through the archive, uh, there were installed the artists who, who I invited to the show, or the artist work, and it was uh, uh, Harun Faroki. We will cooperate with, uh, with uh, uh, his wife, um, and uh, the first time in Slovakia, we exhibited uh, uh, his work. The, the uh, title of the work is The Workers Leaving the Factory in 11 de Decades. So it is a very known work for him, but in Slovakia it was never shown. And uh, I tried to expand the exhibition, not just about uh, the sugar industry, but to expand it to the question of the work through the manufacture, as well as the today view of the of the situation with the workers, also through Jeremy Deller's uh, two works. Uh, you can see the, the work um, of his collection, and the second one is the Motorola VT4000. A mannequin arm wears the Motorola VT4000 tracking device, one of the uh, gadgets used at Amazon warehouses to monitor the speed and efficiency of employees. Uh, and uh, I saw this work in um, the Venice Biennale, and we, we asked uh, Jeremy Deller if he could um, cooperate with us on the topic, and, uh, and uh, he, he um, was some kind of uh, cooperative, and we could exhibit his work. Uh, this is the part of the installation of the, of the Harun Faroki work, and uh, with the Jeremy Deller situation, and in the back, um, there is a linoleum piece from uh, formal 
uh, this uh, South uh, Sugar Company, which was in my town, the Juhacukor uh, was the original name. And uh, we find it in the, in the building, which uh, I showed at the beginning, where the Eastern Sugar uh, name was uh, written and still is there. It is just the only, only uh, building uh, which remains the, <clears throat> the factory. And the original linoleum piece was there. And this was the entrance uh, for the workers who, who went every morning to the work uh, through this linoleum. So we, we got it and uh, I have it. So maybe I will uh, provide it to the uh, Museum uh, of Sugar if uh, it could happen that it will be founded. Through the linoleum, uh, there was a cinema in the exhibition and there was exhibited a, a monument of sugar from Lonnie from Bumelen and Sibren de Haan. Haan's research project follows the idea of investigating the European subsidized sugar trade by also revealing its colonial implications. In 2007, the European trade barrier on sugar imports was still in place, protecting local producers from incoming cheaper products. Purchasing a large amount of sugar in Nigeria, the artists decided to create an in-situ monument, which uh, being classified under the unif Uniform Commercial Code Law, uh, 9703, as an original, original artwork of or monument, was able to circumvent trade restrictions and enter the European Union. Yeah, here you told it already. Okay. So Davy was uh, very, very important for us because we tried to somehow extend the whole, whole view of our experience from uh, Central Europe uh, to the other views from the from the countries, as Netherlands, who who had a colony, or or um, Jeremy Deller, who was uh, who is uh, a British artist, and that was the same way how we dealt with the uh, with the history through this uh, Christian Lauer and and uh, uh, and uh, Dusan Janicek uh, personal view. The last part of the exhibition was the fictive museum of, uh, of sugar. Uh, on the one conference I met museologist who was uh, dedicated really to work with the remains of the sugar factories and uh, his, uh, his uh, uh, experience is very similar to my experience because he is from the uh, town Shurany, which I showed you from the 50s, this big picture, uh, black and white from the company. And uh, he, uh, when he was 35, he just uh, started to collect all the remains, first from the Shurany Museum, and after that uh, from the different uh, museums, uh, factories all over the country. And nowadays he has a big collection, but uh, there is no museum. And he was made a presentation of the idea. When, we finished the, when he finished the presentation, I uh, went to him, I told him that I'm preparing the exhibition and it will be very nice if we could cooperate and make a, a pilot project for the museum. Maybe uh, we can continue with this in the, in the future. Uh, this painting, uh, that's why it is interesting because it is an aquarel from uh, 1895, uh, ordered by the Austrian-Hungarian monarchy uh, when all the industrial buildings uh, 
was painted, somehow collected uh, through these uh, paintings uh, from their territory. And nowadays, uh, this collection is in the uh, Academy, Hungarian Academy of Science in Budapest, which uh, maybe you know from the news, but I don't know if is it interesting in Britain that uh, the Academy of Fine Arts in uh, Academy of uh, of uh, Science is is, uh, is destroyed now now these days in Hungary. So maybe uh, we will collect the remains uh, of that of of that collection. So they are the last pictures from the museum. Um, some models from the uh, former factories. My favorite picture with the children who uh, came to visit the show, and the last picture is again the manufacturer. Thank you very much. So, uh, cooking sections this is uh, Daniel Fernandez Pascual and Alan Schwab. Uh, is a duo of sorry, I don't know if I pronounced that right. Is a duo of spatial practitioners based out of London. It was born to explore the systems that organise the world through food, using installation, performance, mapping, and video. Their research-based practice explores the overlapping boundaries between visual arts, architecture, and geopolitics. Since 2015, they are working on multiple iterations of the long-term site-specific Climavore project, exploring how to eat as climate changes. In 2016, they opened the Empire Remains Shop, a platform to critically speculate on the implications of selling the remains of empire today. Their first book about the project was published by, I think possibly the book there, Columbia Books on Architecture and the City. Cooking Sections was part of the exhibition at the US Pavilion in, in uh, 2014 Venice Architecture Biennial. Their work has been exhibited at the 13th Charger Biennial, Manifesto 12, and uh, Peggy, Peggy Guggenheim Collection, amongst many other prominent venues. They were also residents in the politics of food at Delfina Foundation, and currently lead a studio unit at the Royal College of Art. And they've also most recently been shortlisted for the 2019 Future Generation Art Prize and the Visible Award. So over to you, Daniel and Alan. Great. So thank you very much for the invitation. And it's really great to speak in this context and kind of to bring perhaps histories and stories about sugar um, also to Britain and how it has been dealing with it, but also really, I think, as Ilona, you were touching upon in your presentation, really how the circulation of sugar manifests itself in many ways and kind of penetrates in many aspects of society. Um, as a response, we thought of about presenting part of the Empire Remain shop, uh, but also because we were dealing with sugar a lot, um, I think it would be interesting also for the discussion to like, Think about these, how they intersect. Timber from Burma. Lamb from New Zealand. Fruit from Cyprus. Fish from Nigeria. Sugar from Mauritius. Cotton from Uganda. Jungles today are the gold mines tomorrow. For the sake of proteins, carbs, vitamins, minerals or fibers, posters produced by the Empire Marketing Board of Great Britain encouraged British citizens to consume foodstuffs from the colonies and overseas territories. Stressing the transoceanic supply chain, they equated product to provenance 
by imposing matter on places and places on matter. So Jamaica was to bananas as much as bananas were to Jamaica. The Empire Marketing Board constructed a highly sophisticated imaginary using landscapes and architectures to promote protectionist forms of shopping for both items and origins between 1926 and 1933. Using intensive visual propaganda to remind citizens that empire buyers are empire builders, the British government aimed to increase the flow of goods and money within the territory of the empire through the marketing of foodstuffs cultivated across its colonies and dominions. Within this national project, the planet became a supermarket for consumers, which took availability of produce as a given. The circulation of exotic items introduced new stimulating substances for the bourgeoisie and industrial workers alike. Beyond enhancing palatable pleasure, the speed of bodies was profoundly altered as they became exposed and then accustomed to caffeine, nicotine, cocaine, tea, co cocoa, and of course, sugar. Labor productivity, and in turn, labor exploitation, increased in factories thanks to the improved stamina that rendered the human body simultaneously dependent on energizing and relaxing substances. And here you can see some of these ships uh, bringing sugar from British Guyana, St. Lucia, or um, St. Kitts and Nevis. As familiar as these imports became, most citizens could neither experience in the flesh, not even imagine the production sites of those same foodstuffs. Visual propaganda in, this, in the form of posters, films, but also recipes enhanced a geographical gap between two realities, a relative proximity to a site of tropical foodstuffs, uh, but also a relative distance from the abusive and violent labor conditions of their production. Indeed, the planet was transformed into a highway connecting and dividing sites of production from sites of consumption. At the same time, colonies were depicted as sites where inhabitants and wilderness had to be tamed, while the more civilized dominions were organized by strict geometric order. Buy empire every day, shouted posters to pedestrians in London. Although the British Empire had metastasized since the end of the 16th century, it was not until the 1920s that this propaganda machine became an institutional form of advertising. By 1933, the Empire Marketing Board had poster frames at 1,800 sites in 450 towns and cities. Racist, sexist, and culturally stereotypical, these depictions revealed um, to the British public the significance of their new role in, as they were claiming, civilizing, modernizing, and developing the colonies. Responsibility of the economy uh, was no longer a, just a matter for the government, uh, but it was transferred to citizens' consumption habits, habits as well. So if you don't buy and the national project collapses, it will also be your responsibility. Empire shops were planned in London in the 1930s. Although none of them shops ever opened, they will have made sultanas from Australia, oranges from Palestine, cloves from Zanzibar, and rum and sugar from Jamaica available and familiar in the British Isles. 
to track the contemporary legacy of food infrastructures put in place by the British Empire, in 2016 we opened the first Empire shop. Instead of selling produce from Empire, the Empire main shop was a public, public platform to speculate on the possibility and implications of selling the remains of the British Empire in London today. Over three months between the Brexit vote and Trump's election, it employed food as a tool to question current forms of power and dismantle geographies, origins, and abusive exchanges across the present and future of our post-colonial planets. For the Empire Remain shop, the original vision of the never-opened Empire shops and their five-part poster displays was reinterpreted into a digital platform, this is the website. We invited over 40 contributors to respond to the still-present remains of Empire power structures by drawing together performances, academic papers, dinners, trips, sonic nights, or culinary provocations. Each contribution responded to the implication of selling the remains of the empire today. After centuries of violent colonization, land dispossession and appropriation of natural and cultural resources, the world still favors political structures that promote neoliberal nationalism. The empire remain shop trace the construction of landscapes, imaginaries, economies and aesthetics derived from trading imperial foodstuffs in order to critically think of political country structures for a more evenly distributed, hyper-globalized world. In that regard, the Empire Remain Shop was used as a method to understand the space in which power structures operate and explore how to use that as a field and opportunity to simultaneously challenge them. This is a recipe for an Empire Christmas pudding, a well-known gastronomic paradox the most English of dishes made from the most un-English of ingredients. Written in 1928 by King George V's chef André Sédard, the dish is composed of 17 ingredients from 17 different countries. Currants from Australia. Sultanas from Australia or South Africa. Stone raisins from Australia or South apples Africa. Apples from UK or Bread Canada. Breadcrumbs from UK. Beef suet from UK. Cut candy peel from South Flour Africa. from UK. Demerara sugar from Brit British West Indies or British Eggs Guyana. from UK or Irish Free Ground States. cinnamon from India or Salem. from Zanzibar. Ground nutmeg from British West Indies. Bad pudding spice from India or British West Brandy Indies. Brandy from Australia, South Africa, Brand Cyprus or Palestine. from Jamaica or British Guyana. Beer from England, Wales, Scotland or Ireland. 70 different ingredients that more than a recipe operate as a map. The Empire Remains Christmas Pudding traces the changes that have occurred in the post-colonial food market by exploring the economic strategies and the forces that are at play today. Currents, raisins and sultanas are today just packed in the UK. The Empire Remains Christmas Pudding makes evident that if one foodstuff promoted a specific origin, today, majority of food products are rather packed in the UK or produced in the EU. Brown sugar is branded by Tate and Lyle as Guyanese-inspired instead of from Demerara. Guyanese sugar is included only when fluctuations in global pricing are convenient. At other times, Demerara-inspired will suffice. In such cases, place is only important when it evokes a glorious landscape from the past, as happens in the marketing of Caribbean rum with images of lushness, hedonism, and piracy associated to them. 
The Empire Man Christmas puddings then, therefore, makes evident that if foodstuffs were once promoted according to their source, today food products are rather packed in the UK, milled in the UK, produced in the EU, or use sugar from a range of countries. New economies of origin do not promote a sense of place, but the erasure of it. The trust consumers put in brands promotes a lack of transparency, but the dissolution of origin produces a contemporary logic that has shifted from made in to made nowhere. Besides, wherever the soil could not produce at the lowest prices at a constant pace, or the earth itself had become exhausted, the overseas plantocracy at the periphery of empire has evolved into offshore financial centers. These centers do not trade in tangible commodities, but in ambiguous legality. And as Ronan Palan remarks, such activity in offshore jurisdictions happens in industries that should not have been there in the first place, as it does not make economic sense for the Cayman Islands to serve as the world's fifth largest financial center for the Marshall Islands, Vanuatu or Liberia to be the international shipping giants for um, the small Pacific islands to be at the forefront of the telecommunications revolution, or for Guyana and Niue to be the central rerouting areas for internet porn. A series of spaces in former colonies have emerged out of a financial extraction of value. No longer agricultural, but economies based on a place that does not need soil fertility to cultivate produce. Instead, there are places whose value depends on, the disconnect, on a disconnected economy. These offshore economies are epitomized by buildings like the Ogland House in the Cayman Islands, where almost 20,000 global firms are registered in the same address, all in this four-story building. Standing outside a modern metallic pyramid on the Caribbean coast, one realizes how rare it is to come across a building with a perfectly triangular facade. Staggered by this unique shape, one wonders what happens inside the pyramids of the Caribbean and how people move up and down, whether there are stairs or ramps connected to different levels and whether doors and windows are also triangles shaped. Neither a tropical caprice nor a West Indies folly, the angular roof of this unique coastal structure in Barbados has been carefully calculated for a profane mission. The angles are situated to the purpose of pouring raw bulk sugar crystals from a height, forming a gentle mound. The angle of repose for loosely spread raw sugar is about 40 degrees, where moist sugar mounds may have a slope as steep as 50 degrees. The ways in which crystals slip over each other and touch each other um, after falling from a central discharge feeder indicate the moisture levels of the sugar through a visual comparison of the sugar heap to the slope of the roof. Barbados used to be known as the jewel in the crown of the British Empire, an island with 97% of land used for sugarcane plantations. A society usually precedes its economy but in the colonial plantocracy of Barbados, Benice Rojo remarks that the economy came first and that the population was brought in afterwards. And here you can see all the sugar plantations along the coast, um, all these uh, sugar mills and sugar plantations in the oldest map of Barbados. 
the complex apparatus that allowed the extraction of brown sucrose crystals from juicy sugarcane grass established one of the most violent forms of torture and enslavement in the history of humanity, as sugar mills were only economically viable when run on free, disposable labor. This brutal system was protected to keep up with sugar demand in the voracious European and North American markets. Addiction to sweets enabled the working classes in industrial European cities to work to exhaustion through the help of calories supplied by Caribbean sugar. Industrial factories in London and sugar mills in Barbados were tightly connected. Both oppressed their workers and at the same time were part of a capital flow that led to the dramatic urban transformation. Caribbean sugar cane fields modernized many European cities. And as Stuart Hall remarked, the very notion of Great Britain's greatness is bound up with empire. Euroscepticism and Little Englander nationalism could hardly survive if people understood whose sugar flowed through English blood and rotted English children's teeth. In the past few years, the sugar harvest in Barbados has been delayed later and later into spring while its volume has been reduced to historical minimums. In 2016, the crop reached 8,000 tons, barely a 20th of the yields from the golden age. This total decrease in production also explains why there remains only one sugar processing plant in operation on the island, Port Dale Refinery. Barbados, as a sugar-scarce territory, is struggling to sustain its sucrose-fueled Caribbean imaginary. Tourists are attracted to the island by images of undulating landscapes covered in sugarcane. But today, most fields in Barbados are wraplands, covered with bush plants that are seen as a pest and weed to the cane or as an unattractive and disconnected um, item from the historic splendor of its sugared past. The future of sugarcane is uncertain. One of the alternatives in Barbados is to redirect molasses into the production of bioethanol to support the cane sugar landscape in place. At stake in the discussion is the controversial construction of an additional refinery for bioethanol. The new 42 million project promoted by the Bayesian government aims to transform the abandoned Andrews sugarcane factory into a multi-purpose processing plant. It is less about reviving the island's history than about envisioning a different future based on bioethanol, a generic fuel that turns biomass and calories into energy. But the demand for it relies on the price of oil. Whenever oil prices are low, International demand for bioethanol drops and sugar molasses is more sensibly used for rum production. When oil prices go up, the world needs sustainable alternatives to fossil fuels. At the Empire Remain shop, today We Are Green is a rum and bioethanol fountain that alternately spouts one or the other according to the daily oil price on the Nasdaq. The macro-scale cycles of supply and demand are what eventually construct and distract spaces of production for sugar and its derivatives. Accordingly, today We Are Green is a fountain that does not let you choose which one you prefer. It serves either rum or bioethanol according to the price of oil of that day. 
And through that in sugar, I think we can not only think about the past and how it constructed certain countries and territories, but also what future will these lands hold in a post-sugar landscape. His research has a transatlantic scope, bringing together the politics of historiography in art history with the philosophy of aesthetics and new approaches to materiality and geographical space in the social sciences. He is responsible for six books, including the single author titles Phenomenal Difference, Philosophy of Black British Art from Liverpool University Press 2017 and Timed Out, Art in Transnational Caribbean from Manchester University Press 2011. He's a former long-standing member of the editorial board of Vertex and founding editor of Open Arts Journal. From 2014-15, he occupied an inaugural position uh, of Kindler Chair in Global Country Art at Colby University in New York, and he has uh, held visiting roles at the US, UC uh, Berkeley, Yale University, and University of Oxford, and also received in 2013 uh, Philip Liverpool Prize for Art History. So welcome. Thank you, thanks very much. Um, okay, everyone else seems to have sat down, so I think I will too. Um, uh, okay, I'm going to make some very informal remarks. I'm going to try and keep them as informal as possible. And I've just quickly sort of revised my remarks in the, in the, the light of um, this presentation around uh, from cooking sections, which is absolutely brilliant. You've actually saved me a lot of trouble in trying to fill in some uh, historical, historical details. But... Um, Thank you to Ilona um, and thanks to the organizers today uh, for the invitation. So as Maya has just mentioned, um, my background is focused largely on the Caribbean. I'm interested in African, Asian, and Caribbean diasporas. Um, and uh, so my first book um, was on, on the Caribbean and really how the, how the Caribbean has featured or, or rather failed to feature in uh, the common sort of dominant narratives of uh, art history, which is the, the discipline that I, I've trained in. Um, Maya and Ruben asked me to reflect on any parallels today between colonial and post-colonial contexts, uh, post-colonial uh, uh, histories, perhaps histories of art, and socialist and post-socialist contexts. And I thought, gosh, that's a bit of a, a leap for me. Um, uh, socialist and post-socialist context, I'm not really sure. And then I thought about it uh, when we were talking earlier and recalled that this is probably not the first time I've um, explored or sort of tentatively explored, begun to explore that sort of parallel. Um, there's a scholar um, based at UCL, I think, um, called William Blacker, um, who I've worked with on, on a project that I led uh, entitled Disturbing Pasts, Memories, Controversies and Creativity, where we brought together um, the Memories at War uh, consortium of projects led by Alexander Etkind, who himself works on socialist and post-socialist histories and has, has sort of tendered comparisons with colonial and post-colonial contexts. I'm going to frame my very brief remarks as questions to Ilona, but also kind of to, the, to yourselves and the audience. Um, and yeah, there's a certain amount of this I could probably just um, 
cut off and put on the put put back in a drawer because uh, cooking sections did a very good job of reminding us about the relationship between uh, capitalism and slavery. Uh, when Marxian historians um, such as Eric Williams, uh, first Prime Minister of uh, Trinidad and Tobago, and an and Oxford-trained historian uh, wrote about the history of the Caribbean, they identified, he and many others of his generation identified the role of capital accumulation through uh, transatlantic slavery, rather the role of transatlantic slavery in modern capital accumulation and slavery really as a kind of touch paper for uh, modern capitalism. Um, it seems clear to me that slavery is, uh, based on their work, is, is inextricable with the rise of material wealth uh, and, and, and dominance that, um, that characterized Western Europe in the early uh, modern, into the modern period. We have a very strong sense, I think, today um, of slavery and modernity as sort of mutually produced and, and producing, with sugar having a pretty central role, but of course not an exclusive role. Let's not forget the role of tobacco, cotton, uh, cocoa. Um, cooking sections uh, there um, reminded us of what Stuart Hall had, uh, had, had said uh, about the Caribbean, and uh, I would add that where he identified it as a quintessentially modern zone with regard to the development of modern capitalism and its uh, relationship to uh, plantation slavery, transatlantic slavery, and the trade uh, and the trade in slave slaves. But what about artistic traditions of visualizing place in relation, say, to sugar production? We've just seen some very good examples um, of. Um, how did you put it? Jamaica is the banana, and banana is as, Jama as Jamaica. Um, I wonder if we could go further back, though, than that sort of 20th century representation and consider the painting of tropical landscapes rather than print culture or, or graphic, uh, graphic production. Um, here, even th there, though, um, on a cautionary note, one needs to look at 18th and 19th century painting in particular of um, of the tropics um, where sugar was produced clearly as um, images that represent sugar production. Sugar production features, I'd say, in more of an oblique for fashion. And I say this because of the role given to the production of sugar. That, those images that you showed where you can see the, the, um, the actual machinery of the industrial machinery of sugar is very rarely represented um, in those uh, landscapes and in that landscape tradition. And there's a kind of particular role that's given to figures in that landscape, the figures being the workers, the laborers, the enslaved people. Figures, generally speaking, in my experience, um, are not much included in those landscapes. And if they are at all, then they are really only ever included to create an effect, and that effect is to um, if, if you like, elaborate the grammar of landscape, the visual grammar of landscape, much as pastoral figures in the European landscape um, feature, they become very secondary in those landscapes. They're props, they're props to give a sense of scale or else they're misrepresented often when they are brought to the foreground, almost as figures, uh, as peasant-like figures, as, indeed as, as members of the peasantry. 
in some then, those figures, in a sense, are quite kind of subject to what we might call early modern myths of the harmonious extraction of labour, which is framed by the, the visual language of the tropical picturesque. Workers, when they're shown, if they're shown at all, are leisured workers, they're leisured people. Their place in the landscape is naturalized, it's kind of norm normatized. And in a sense that, of course, that visual regime of representation contradicts the trauma and the displacement that went with transatlantic slavery and the plantation system. So I said I was going to raise a number of questions, so let me just like go with those, go through those. I would ask of Eastern Sugar, where, where are the figures in these landscapes? The first impression I had, Elena, was of these, um, was of images of the um, former sites of production where the, the figures hadn't appeared. And then, of course, I started to notice that there was and there is uh, a, a strong inclusion of those figures. Um, and what I suppose I'd like to do in discussion is kind of ask you about the terms of the inclusion of these figures uh, in those, um, both in those landscapes such as they are, um, but also in the exhibition um, itself. Because as we've seen um, in your brilliant presentation, many people are indeed included, um, not only as figures, but as voices, as named individuals, as talking heads, um, talking to camera, as well as as workers who produce those sugar loaves within that central display space. Most of the exhibition seems to be taken up with this grand hall of, um, uh, in which um, uh, all these uh, tons of sugar were produced. I wonder how, Ilona, you'd approach the divergent experiences of those different kinds of individuals um, between the former directors or engineers as well as the workers and how does one kind of, um, yeah, as an artist kind of um, interplate or mediate, if you like, if at all, between, um, between those different sorts of um, identities. Um, having been asked about the parallels between the, these kind of two histories, say a Caribbean one and this more contemporary Eastern European one, over a long durée, I'm struck immediately by one thing too, which is the business of the absence of something else, which is not only the, not, not just the figures, but of the, the landlords and the owners. And, and Caribbean uh, plantation system, as it kind of reached maturity in a sense, was very much characterized by absenteeism, with the, the overseers and drivers being present, but the actual owners being thousands of miles away. I wonder about corporate ownership of Eastern Sugar then in Slovakia and elsewhere. You know, are the actual owners there? Are they present? Are they ever really pictured? Are they, uh, what advantages do they draw from that invisibility? like and how as an artist do you respond to that uh, in trying to make visible or visualize this particular history the history of a kind of invisibility of the owners and what are the differences then between this colonial context and this socialist post-socialist one at the basic level in the Slovakian setting there's a discourse of pro productivity 
which is centered on mechanization rather than manual work. And we see enormous machines, enormous spaces in which machines once existed, hollowed out spaces, um, ruins really of, uh, of um, factories. And yet, in the late 18th century and early 19th century, abolitionists um, who campaigned against the slave trade and slavery took the approach of trying to sort of remind uh, the body politic here in the UK, remind the domestic consumers of sugar, of the cruelty, the loss of liberty, the bondage, the bloodshed that sugar production had come to require. And cooking section put this very well, reminding us about the matter of uh, blood and sugar. In the Caribbean, however, I'd say long overlooked until the early 20th century, when historians like C.L.R. James began to write about this in the 1930s, um, long overlooked uh, uh, how the enslaved people also held a role in achieving abolition. And I wonder about that in the context of Ilona's exhibition about the workers and their role. So very often we get a kind of political economy of the impossibility of the, um, and a narrative of decline of these spaces, roughly from 1989 to 2004, that's four, from the uh, um, collapse of the Berlin Wall to the accession of the of Slovakia to the European Union, if I got, if I got my dates right. Um, and it, uh, there are so many factors involved, aren't there? And we hear all about um, the lack of finance, you say, which, um, if we can call it that, which, uh, or capital that, uh, causes those spaces not to be able to subsist, the corporatization, um, the, also the um, impossible ways in which um, the European Union comes to control those spaces and apply systems of um, uh, systems uh, uh, quotas and compensation and so on, in other words, regulation. What about the workers and their role, if you like? In bringing about the, that historical change, you know, you don't need to be a Marxian to see that uh, that there are forms of resistance that were there in the colonial context, that were every day, that were processual, that were habitual, and presumably there there was an affective kind of uh, economy in which these workers um, in the Slovakian context uh, operated. And I wonder how, as an artist, one tries to bring that to the fore, if at all. Occasionally, of course, in the, Car in the Caribbean context, we have, I'm wrapping up by the way, I know you're looking at your watches, um, that we look at the, um, we, we notice there were specific events. So in the Caribbean context, the, the kind of, the framing, uh, the sort of most memorable event really is, which was a routine event, was the burning of plantations. You know, the trashes and the, the crop itself at a certain point was dry enough to burn because it contains sugar, so it's really going to burn. And that was a way of uh, uh, sending a message, I suppose. But it was by, had symbolic dimension, but it also disrupted sugar production. It set back the means of production by destroying the site of production. I wonder about the agency then of sugar workers in Slovakia. Is it appropriate or relevant to even ask that kind of question? Would that risk a kind of 
historical sort of anachronism um, to ask that question. And how might this exhibition then, Eastern Sugar, bring us to reflect on this other history, uh, which in a way might then uh, cause us to reflect differently on the present? How can it tell us, if anything, what can it tell us, if anything, about colonial and post-colonial histories of imaging and injustice? And Cooking Section lavishly illustrated this history with its uh, Empire Marketing Board posters and its um, even your brilliant um, Empire Remains Christmas pudding, uh, Christmas pudding recipe. Um, clearly, there's a contemporary sort of transversal reading to be done of the visualizing of sugar and slavery that could be kind of rerouted, I suppose, through Bratislava. Um, Maya and Ruben write so elegantly in the catalogue and they've repeated in their introduction today about how uh, Ilona has made careful and judicious choices as an artist addressing the critical and the aesthetic dimensions of her topic and created such poignant specificity. They write about the anti-monument to the post-communist transformation and at that point, for me, that's where, in a sense, the whole thing starts to sort of separate into specific sorts of histories, and we, we're reminded and caused to remind us of the specificity. Because anti-monument, and the anti-monument is not the language in which we're discussing colonialism, slavery, and plantation, the plantation system in the Caribbean at present in our monuments to abolition or the remembrance of resistance to slavery in the Caribbean. Monumentality is, is, is sort of brought to the fore. Uh, I don't think the language of the anti-monument has much featured. Indeed, I'd say in the Caribbean, the local cultures of memorialization and the politics of remembrance articulate national stories as well as international co collaboration. And another thing that stands out for me about the Caribbean context is that they also tend to register an anti-globalization message which in this context gets grouped together with those other things that, in a sense, Ilona is producing the exhibition in the face of, which is populism and xenophobia. So I'm going to stop there. Um, hopefully there are enough questions to go with and say thank you. Thank you very much.